Welcome to a special episode of Building Optimal. I recently had the chance to sit down with one of our newest private lenders for our spec homes, an outfit out of California called Arixa Capital. Greg Hebner, one of their managing directors, came down to Austin to visit with us and tour some of our projects. And we discuss everything from the Austin market to California immigration, the latest market and financing trends, qualities of a good lender, something very important, and more. Thank you all for listening. Y'all enjoy. This episode is brought to you by our brand partners, Quaker Windows, a new company that we have integrated into our portfolio of construction. We are absolutely thrilled with the quality of this company's windows. We buy ours through local vendor here in Austin called Grand Openings. They've got locations in different areas. Mark Carter, who's the head of Grand Openings here in Austin, has assembled an incredible operation, a great team. We love working with them. We love buying these Quaker windows. They've got a really high quality suite. This episode is also brought to you by Sub-Zero Wolf. We have been installing these appliances in our home almost exclusively for years now. And well enough said, they've got enough recognition in the industry. You know, these are top of the line appliances and our customers absolutely love them. It's a huge brand enhancer for us. So thank you to our brand partners on to the episode. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Greg, let's start with you. If you can give us the origin story of Arixa Capital. So my partner, when he started the business many years ago, um, first of all, he was looking for a name for the company because when he first started the, the company, he had like a generic name, like a standard management or standard capital. And there was somebody said, you know, can't use that name anymore. So his wife was doing public health work down in, in Africa, a bunch of first ladies, and they were in a country called Namibia, which I had to check on the map. And there was a city that they visited called Arixa in Namibia, and he liked the idea it was an A, even though the Yelp pages had long since become relevant, and kind of stuck on it, thought it was a memorable name. Takes most of our clients months, if not years, to learn how to pronounce it correctly, and uh, often difficult to spell, but uh, it's become, you know, kind of a brand now in our industry, and uh, Wonder what, that is, that what is, does it mean? It is the name of a city. It's just the name of a city? The name of a okay. city. I, yeah. I'm sure it means something in the Namibian language yeah. that I've never gone back that far to trace yeah. the uh, etymological roots of the uh, of the name. So. Well, I just learned something new today. Okay. Arixa. I was one of the offenders. Arixa. Yeah. So we have many repeat offenders. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't get a chance to talk about this at launch. So what, you guys obviously are from different parts of California. So, Carly, you're the Bay Area. I'm the Bay Area. Yeah. We talked to you always in Austin. What's the sense being down here? What do you all think about the city? Well, I mean, we've certainly witnessed over the last few years uh, lots of our best companies being uh, recruited to your state. So there's obviously a, a lot of interest in just understanding this market and seeing the migration. We just spent lunch with a, you know, a successful young professional who had relocated uh, from Los Angeles. And there's a continuing migration of people that have um, uh, various things that are important to them that um, this particular state and city are appealing. So I think 
I get a trend that's not going to slow down. There's a few places in the country that we feel this about. Nashville's another place. Um, that was my next question. Certainly Parson, Florida. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just you've seen more over the last two or three years where political views and or state and local governments are driving uh, where people want to reside. And certainly tax policy, uh, business-friendly attitudes. And, uh, you know, you're seeing some of the, you know, arguably most successful companies in the world who are putting large footprints down in Austin or in Dallas. And, um, you know, that tends to be a gigantic uh, tailwind for all types of real estate. Yeah. Um, are you seeing any slowdown in the amount of people or companies coming to Texas? Just you know, anecdotally. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's, there's it's funny. One of my one of my closest friends lives in Dallas, and he loves to send me every time something happens. And I seem to get them still very regularly. But um, I'm not sure there's anything anecdotal that would indicate there's a slowdown. There's just been a number of okay. high high profile companies. So we obviously get in in LA. It's sad to see you go, kind of uh, you know from the yeah. from the publications. But I thought people just shifting staff. Um, I think it started in the. You know, after the global financial crisis, you saw most of the mortgage industry move from Orange County to, to Dallas and the suburbs. Yeah. Texas became a gigantic mortgage servicing state. So I think financial services continues to be a big growth area for, for Texas. And obviously, technology, you know, where you're located, having the university here, having, you know, having his, the history of Dell and you're getting some of the, you know, Tesla, some of the most cutting edge companies in the world are choosing to put headquarters here put gigantic operations here. So there's obviously an appeal because they're bringing people here. They're not just uh, hiring people from from local Texas. So most of the people are probably coming from our state. So again. What's the, like, the reputation of Austin amongst Californians? I mean, you know, for a while, it was the coolest thing outside of California. You know, live music capital of the world, really hip city. Is it still that? Is it losing any of the allure amongst the view of Californians, or what are you seeing? I mean, I think I think if you're going to move to Texas, it would be the coolest city to live in in Texas yeah. for a Californian. Um, you know, my just initial impressions, I hadn't been here, you know, uh, since before the pandemic. You know, certainly you see um, you see a lot of young people. You see, you know, clean streets. You see, it looks like a very safe place to be, and you see. Uh, you know, restaurants full, hotels full. You know, it seems like a bustling, active city. Um, I don't know that the reputation is any different. I, I think we're dealing with some of our own issues in California, to be honest. And we have, you know, we have some elevated crime. We've got challenges with our schools and things where I think people are looking at, you know, they reach a certain stage in life. They're just looking for things that may drive those decisions. And I still think you get a lot of money in Texas relative to what um, people are used to spending for housing, uh, both rents and for sale. Yeah, that makes sense. The trends inside California right now, I mean, obviously you hear the news stories and you never know how accurate they are. I mean, do y'all think that, like, I always hear about, oh, there's some new tax law that's going to be coming down the pipeline that's going to cause people to um, immigrate even more so out of California. Are those trends still in full play? Are there still things that are causing people to continually migrate out, or are those starting to abate at all? I haven't seen any abatement. Yeah, um, we passed a law in March, that went effective March of twenty-three. Um, it, it's uh, been uh, inaptly named the Mansion Tax, but it's. Um, um, I heard about this. 
it's basically um, it's called ULA, but it's a transfer tax paid for by a seller of any real estate over five million or over ten million that is not dependent on your basis, not dependent on how long you've owned the property, and if you sell a house or a building for four million nine ninety nine nine ninety nine, there's no tax. If you sell it for five million, you pay four and a half percent of the purchase price. So there'll never be a trade between five million and five into five point two four. Never ever, um, and it's really slowed down that market. So there's only a couple places in the world that have these um, kind of taxes, and it was done to raise funds to help deal with some of our homelessness issue. And what it's done is it's really slowed the transaction activity, as you might expect. Yeah, a lot sure. Of people are there's a lot of lawsuits pending. A lot of people trying to see if this can be overturned. Um, and we have one of the highest state income taxes in the United States. Uh, soon to be higher. You know, that's I, what I keep I, hearing. I, 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 so I mean, that rumor is, is I, that's true. I mean, they've got it's got to be passed and likely to pass. Fifteen percent is, I think, what they're targeting. Yeah, I mean, it's highly. I think the short answer is there's nothing I'm seeing on the horizon that would indicate that there is a move away from taxing high earners in California. Yeah, and um, you know, California has a very unique concentration of capital gain wealth. Because there's so many of the companies just using some in your market like Tesla or Meta or people like that, where significant amount of wealth and taxable income is generated through stock transactions. And stock transactions can obviously be timed and realized when you choose to do so. And, um, you know, I think when you're starting to push up to where you're paying almost 50% of the state income tax on top of the federal tax, it's going to drive the behavior of those people that are relatively, that are very mobile. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I had lunch with that high-profile agent from Beverly Hills, I think, a few months ago, and she's talking about that mansion tax. And I asked her, like, what are the immigration patterns that you're seeing? And she said the same thing you are, like, really no slowdown or abatement of, of immigration. And she said the top three cities were her clients, where they're going to, and these are, pretty ultra wealthy clients, I would assume, um, Austin, Dallas, and Las Vegas as oh, yeah. the third. Is that what you guys are seeing as well? I think you get some to Miami and South Florida. I had a close friend recently relocate to South Florida. Although I think the, uh, I think that's probably more of a New York East coast down to Florida. That's what I kind of assume. There's a little bit of bifurcation, right? Where a lot of West Coast is coming to Austin, Texas, Vegas, and then East Coast more towards I will, Miami. I will, I will say I know some developers doing really well in Nashville, attracting yeah. West Coast and East Coast high net worth folks who, um, you know, they've got 0% taxes in Tennessee as well. Do you guys lend in a lot in Nashville? Not a lot. We've started to. We've got yeah. some loans in those markets. And we're, we're really, our lending and investment strategy has been pretty constant, which is we want really low supply, high demand markets where it's difficult to build and that uh, our builder and real estate investor clients can actually earn reasonable margins because of the, the value they're creating. So, you know, we wouldn't do well in a distant suburb where every home was built between 1992 and 1998 and you're going to go in and you know, update the paint and fix the floors. I mean, our clients tend to um, significantly reposition the use of an asset. A lot of California is densification which I'm, you know, I'm hearing is more of a topic here in Austin and here in Texas, which is yeah. 
you know, just not enough supply for, for the people that want to live here, um, or really substantial repositions. So you'll see a 1,500-square-foot house on a 7,500-square-foot lot that wants to be a 4,000-square-foot house. And, you know, and clients can take and either redevelop and remodel and add square footage, or they can tear it down and build a new home. And that matches what the buyers in that particular community want. So I see a lot of that happening here in Austin. And, um, you know, you're just delivering something that is very hard for a retail buyer to find. And, you know, and I think, again, as long as you've got good execution uh, and a good market, us in a lending capacity, providing private credit to that client is in, it's a great investment for us. And, you know, we've been lucky to work with amazing clients who have done very well matching the needs with, with what, you know, with what the buyers want. Yeah. Or, or rent or renters. Yeah. Speaking of Nashville. So I've heard that Nashville, Asheville, and Charlotte are three cities that are just really primed for, for growth right now. Then I've also heard that Nashville is maybe a little bit more out in its growth phase, maybe still got room to run, but it's already been on a run more so than like Asheville and, and Charlotte. What do y'all see in those markets? Y'all think that there's still a lot of room to run there? I, I do. I mean, again, I think the, uh, I don't know the Asheville market very much. We've done some stuff in and around Charlotte. But again, I think that the common theme of all of these cities is they're job creators and they're good job creators. And they've also created really vibrant um, communities where younger people want to be a part of. So, I mean, again, I, Austin is famous as a place that, you know, it's a fun place to be. You know, I mean, there are cities where fun goes to die, you know, and that's just if you're a younger person with good job opportunities and growth and you can be in a place that's got some vibrancy, whether it's outside activities, you know, social life, restaurants, you know, whatever, you know, music, whatever it might be, those cities are they're they're winning versus maybe some of the older cities. If we go up to the Rust Belt, up to, you know, maybe cities like Cleveland or Detroit or, you know, Milwaukee and places like that that may they just may not offer the same vibrancy in terms of job opportunities and you know, just quality of life. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think long-term secularly, I mean, you know, unless things really change in Texas, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, you're going to continue to see the migration and every population pattern you've seen seems to indicate, you know, you know Arizona has also been a big benefactor. They've come out in 23 with a very large tax cut. I think their state income tax is now two, two and a half percent. It's one of the lowest in the country. Um, so Arizona is also another big benefactor. Tons and tons of investments going into Phoenix and around that area. They're one of the semiconductor manufacturing hubs in the United States. So they're benefiting from the Inflation Reduction Act funds that you know, were set aside to bring chip manufacturing back from, you know, from the from Asia to the U.S. So, you know, long term, I think these are all cities that have tremendous opportunities for for real estate investors. I mean, those are the those are the drivers you need demand. Yeah, that's a great overview. Well, let's talk about the private lending market for a second. There's got to be huge demand right now for private loans, especially given banks pulling back. Have y'all just seen a complete surge in yeah. requests for loans? Yeah, I think look, I think the demand for capital has been strong, you know, for for several years. The biggest change has been a lot of clients uh, and it sounds like you know you've been a bank borrower and stuff you've done you know had grown accustomed to getting 
you know, certain type of product and program, a certain type of relationship and certain, I'll call it, uh, you know, just predictability from their banks. And um, certainly over the last nine months, you know, bank failures and liquidity issues, we're seeing a different pool of clients. Um, so not only is demand strong, but so many people were having conversations, you know, Carly and I have conversations where we've never worked with a private credit provider. We've never worked with a private lender. We've only ever worked with a bank. Like, what do you guys do? Like, what is a private loan? What does that mean? Where does your money come from? How do you guys work? Um, literally just never had that conversation before because they never needed to. Yeah, yeah. And we're seeing situations where a bank will say, you know, I'll lend you $3 million just just with one condition, which is I'd like you to keep $3 million with me at the bank. So you're like, I'm not really borrowing any money. If I'm given the same amount of money I'm asking for, I can just do it with my own money. So um, really that's a bank saying we don't really need or want your loan right now. Um, in fact, we'd prefer if you didn't borrow it from us is kind of the message without wanting to burn a relationship and they're not being rude about it, but they're just not in the market to make a lot of loans. And construction loans, bridge loans, um, these kind of loans, they're relatively short duration, you know, six months, a year, two years, two and a half years at the max. A bank would rather make a loan for 10 or 20 or 30 years and not really have to do a lot of work during that time. And something that's producing income, that's very predictable. There's a lot of regulatory pressures and capital um capital charges that banks have to deal with now that are even just because of what's happened. We don't see it changing. We see, you know, we see private credit continuing to grow. It's growing on the business side. It's growing on the real estate side. And our belief is when bank customers have a chance to work with a well-run private lending operation, it's kind of like a big sigh of relief. It's like you can actually have a conversation. People really try to understand what your needs are. It's common sense, um, and the rates and the costs aren't that different than what a bank would be charging in today's market. It's, the spreads come down a lot. It really it's come down a lot. And, um, you know, and our goal is to build a lot of great relationships in the, over the next few years as banks struggle to come back in the market. And we think there's, there's just such a difference between the speed, uh, the ability to to really operate your business at a high level that – you know, just it's really hard to imagine a bank being willing to do the kind of things that, you know, a successful real estate investor, developer, builder wants them to do. Not because they, the people don't want to do it. It's just simply the rules and regulations and what, you know, what you have to do to go get, you know, you and I can have a conversation. You can say, Greg, got this property on 123 Main Street. I'm buying it for X. I'm going to build it for Y. I'm going to sell it for Z. What do you think? I can say, I like it. Let's do it. And you're talking to the person who's actually in charge of the credit and making investment decisions. You know, I mean, it's, you just can't do that in a bank. Never will have that level of you be talking to the CEO of the bank who's not allowed to participate on the credit committee. It's just and that's yeah, that's what you have to you have to build your business to be able to because speed is how you're going to get deals. Feels like you're going to find an opportunity. You might get a phone call in the middle of this podcast and. Oh my gosh, this is like a great opportunity. I need to move quickly. What should I do? Right? That's yeah. the world that you're in. And that call may come today, it may come next week, it may come next year. But yeah. when it comes, you need to have people in your circle that can allow you to take advantage of them. Well, you know, I have used almost exclusively banks for my 15 years building. When I first got into the business, at least the way that I 
viewed the world is that you had banks and then you had hard money and it was uh, it felt like a much less developed industry at that point it was typically kind of cowboy type operators locally that you know were charging four and twelve or three and thirteen or more or whatever and and that was just it was just this very kind of I didn't really trust it. The ones who did have a little bit of an out uh, outfit were basically syndicating capital. And I felt like there was a huge amount of syndication risk because they weren't that really, you know, that well backed or right. so I always stayed away from it. In fact, early in the podcast, I did kind of a, um, probably about four years ago by now, I did a, uh, a little podcast talking about like, look, if you're going to use hard money, there's some real risks with it. But what I've seen over the last few years is this like development of a much more institutionalized private lending industry where you've got truly professional, extremely well-backed companies like you guys that have stepped into the space and kind of, for me, it's completely transformed my perception of the space and the value now makes sense, especially now. So, you know, somebody who's used banks forever, like, one of the big things, one of the reasons why I ended up doing some loans with you guys is because our banks are still willing to make us loans, but it's, you know, the deposit requirements are so high right now. And it's always a balance for us. We want to be, we always want to have a heavy liquid position, but the amount of liquidity that they're requiring is more than what we think is ideal for and optimal for our business, such that I'm looking at and say, okay, well, I leave, you know, my, deposits more than I want at your bank. And I'm making, I don't know, three or 4% if you're lucky. on that. Yeah. If I'm lucky <laughs> or, or I can be making 25% by investing in myself and my own projects. And it, you know, so for me, it's just like a really black and white equation. And so as that spread is compressed between banks and private money, and you factor in these other external factors beyond just the, the, true cost comparison of money, all of a sudden it starts to really tilt the, the equation towards working with it. And I mean, I'll continue this caveat. There's always still these, you know, always these cowboy hard money lenders that are out there and I know a bunch and there's just a few that I know of who are really high quality. And I think the key right now is to try to start building some relationships with some, you know, some of these high quality institutional private lenders. Well, Jared, it's definitely an institutional there's been an institutional interest in the space. I mean, just for your listeners, maybe a few things just to ask, and maybe these are things that you pointed out, but like know where the money is going to come from to fund your loan, know where the money is going to come to fund your construction, and know who's going to be handling the servicing and the construction of your loan. So, I mean, I think one of the things um, very early on, I just my background was I was a heavy volume flipper and builder for years, and I worked with a lot of private lenders and a lot of banks. And when I started doing lending, you know, most you know, most of the time, I was like, each of these lenders had things I liked and a lot of things I did not like. And I really tried to create as much of a platform as I could where the things I didn't like, I could control. So, you know, it doesn't sound like a big deal to be able to fund a loan without an appraisal. What is a big deal? Because appraisals can get dragged on for three or four or five or six weeks. So we can do that on our side. We can issue a, a payoff statement in an hour if you needed it to. We can turn around to draw if you needed us to. You can just control all those things. A lot of lenders have um, have turned to, you know, basically originating and selling loans. 
And you know, much as the traditional mortgage industry was grown, Wall Street takes lots of loans. They package them up in the bonds and securities and et cetera, et cetera. And you as a builder or a real estate investor, you really don't know who holds your paper. Like they don't know you, you don't know them, and you're just a piece of paper and a number and an interest payment. And, um, you know, and you know, things happen. I think the last three or four years has shown us that everything you thought could never happen in your business could happen. Yeah. You know, you know, we can spend hours talking about all the things we never imagined that really, you know, infected our businesses. And just to be able to have a conversation saying, look, I thought A was going to happen and like Z just happened. What do we do? And, oh, you still care about my loan because you still hold it. Let's figure out what we need to have a conversation and, as opposed to, I'm sorry, Jerry, I don't hold your paper. There's nothing I can do. It's out of my hands. And that's what a lot of these conversations were. And then next thing you know, you've got people remargining you or saying, and hey, there's a, there's a pandemic. I need you to pay down your loan because the sky is falling. You're like, no, people are moving to Austin every day and buying homes. The sky is not falling. But once you lose control of that, even the best lenders, if they don't have that control, he who holds the note and holds the paper makes the decisions. Yeah. So it's just a, it seems like a simple thing, but ask your lender, you know, where does the funds come? Are you running a fund or pri- is it private equity? Is it, are you syndicating to your point? Are you selling it to third parties? Like, and if they don't want to answer the question, I think you probably know the answer. <laughs> well, so that's what, the ha- that's what happened with us. See, I was talking to uh, Chris, Chris Merriquin. Who made the introduction between yeah, yeah. between us? And um, there, our loan size is more than what they can handle. And he's like, uh, "We we can't get there for you guys. Y'all uh, exceed our limit." Nothing, and, and not our, because you're not a great borrower. I mean, you're, yeah, it's it's just, just our, the box. We were looking for three, four million dollar loans, and he made the intro to you. And again, I'm skeptical of a space, but then he's, he was like. Oh, and they they got a relationship with with Oak Tree. I was like, okay, now we're talking. Like to me, that changes everything because it's about who you guys and because you're right, it's all about the backing. Who you you backed with the professionalism of the outfit, and that's but they, and, but they let you control. But I think the key too is though, not only just the capital, but just being able to control the experience. Like there are there are folks who say, you know what, um, Eric's here with us and runs a an incredible construction management and construction draw department. Some lenders say, you know what? That needs to be a third-party service. Yeah, We don't want to invest in it, build the technology, manage it. And you're out there talking to a complete stranger every two weeks or every three weeks, explaining to them why you have high ceilings and decided to use this material. And you're just like pulling your hair. Like I told the other guy that last time. Yeah. And it feels like you're having to negotiate to get your mark, to get your draws. And you're like, I'm too busy. I got 10 projects going. I don't want to negotiate. Yeah. You know, so it's, it, these things are not so many of our clients. It's like waited months, sometimes weeks and months to get a draw from a bank. Like they had to finish a particular part of the project, you know, to get this sign off to get this money. And for whatever reason, things were getting delayed a lot during, you know, yeah. during the pandemic. It's like, we're going to follow you as you put dollars in. We're putting dollars in. Like, you don't have to be 100% done with the rough plumbing. You do 20, you know, you spend 20%, we'll work with you in 20%. You, work, you do 40%, work with 40%. It just, it lets sophisticated clients manage their capital and manage their working capital with knowledge of when they're going to get funds. Like it's, this is the hardest part of this business is you're running multiple jobs with multiple cash flows. 
you got to pay things at a certain time. And, and you know this better than anybody. It's paying your vendors, paying your subs, paying your work. That's what builds your reputation and allow you to have the best people on your team, deliver the best product for your clients. It's, it really is important. And if the banks aren't giving that to you or another lender's arguing with you, and maybe you can keep it up, maybe you can't. But if something suffers in that execution, it impacts your reputation, impacts everything you're doing. Yeah. You know, like, and Eric, again, Eric's team, this is, this is their lifeblood. Yeah. Now I'll brag on Eric for a second. I mean, when we had our first call, the amount of knowledge that they had around the draw process and, and construction in general, because obviously a little, little, scary, to, little scary, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> they were saying things I didn't know and I was kind of like caught off guard, like, wait, hold on. There aren't many people who, who are teaching me things anymore on the draw process. This guy is another me, level. Still teaching me construction. This guy is another level. I'm still learning, yeah. <laughs> like, to be fair. But it comes from project management. I mean, it's, yeah. I was on the other side requesting draws from lenders before I got into this side of the table. So it, it, it's just, it, it, it drives off of what the need is in the field. And if you've got a lender that's in tune to what you need, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be hard just because. No, no. And to your point, when it's third party, it's not connected to the, it's not connected to the lender and the people at the lending facility usually don't know enough about construction. Some, some do, but some have no idea. And construction is its own language. And if you, if you can speak the construction language and you truly understand the order of things and what it's like in the field and, and the challenges that are faced, you can, you can mitigate the risk and support the project at the speed that it needs to be supported at, at the rate that the developer needs it done at. And you can also, you can also pause and, and slow down when somebody looks like they're going over their skis and it's just having the heads up play, the court vision to know when that's the case. Jerry, one thing Eric does, which would not be needed in an organization like you guys, because you guys are obviously, your budgets are sophisticated. You're, you, you know, you've been doing it for a long time. A lot of times he's teaching people how to institutionalize budgets and line items in a way that would probably be really surprising to you yeah. to see, like building schedules of values, building line items, challenging assumptions in budgets where that just isn't going to get done for that with what you're trying to do. Yeah. All on the front end, you know, like you're not going to be able to do that for that. And at a line item basis, not at a price per square foot on a specific yeah. line item basis. A line item cost per and, yeah. and then teaching them so the next one, they can do better, letting them know, hey, you're way out of, you know, that drywall was way out of whack from what you should be spending. Like, cause you're seeing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these things. And it, it you know, you, you don't need that information cause you have that. But like a lot of smaller clients and smaller builders, they just don't have access. Yeah. Some yeah. of them, some of them not so small. Some of them, some of them have been using, they, they take a global cost per foot cause they know they can build it for 450 a foot. And they say, okay. And they take their square footage, they put 450, they come up with their total cost number. The total cost number is fine. They can build the project for that number. They have a generic budget they've been using for the last 10 years that is the same 20 line items that they've been using. And they just have their girl back of house allocate the numbers to hit the. And so what I've done is over the, over the course of their projects, I've managed their budgets and gotten it to the point of what they really have spent. Are you a team? Yeah. Yep. And then, and then we build a predictive model and we back that number back through. And then we actually, over the course of the next five or six projects, really manage it to tighten it up so that when they say, Hey, I I know I'm building at 450 a foot. I know this is my square footprint. I can percentage aggregate their budget backwards and get within spitting distance of, of what they actually are spending and then get, build them a safe contingency and manage it. Yeah, it's, it's powerful for us. The more we work with people across areas and markets, the more we can compare things, literally on a line item basis. And Eric's working on some fascinating technology that's going to really 
take and, and not only look at things in total, look at things over trends. Mm-hmm. It's been really fun to do in 2021, right? You know, <laughs> what's happening with lumber? You know? But, um, but you know, to have that over lots of different projects in different markets, it's, it, we think it's pretty powerful data both mm-hmm. to manage risk, but also to help, you know, on an aggregate basis, help our clients. Mm-hmm. I'd love to have that kind of feedback from you if you can ever give it to us. Hey, by do, the way, we think, that y'all, we think that y'all are a little higher than market on your plumbing yeah. electrical I'd love to the more the more business we do here yeah, yeah I do amazing. I do it in LA all day I, I, always I, I would be shocked if it's more expensive in Austin I will be shocked yeah, but yeah. <laughs> you gotta you have you're gonna have to categorize by submarket. Mm-hmm. oh for sure you have but to. yeah that's and really, fin- really and, finish qual- and finish quality I mean yeah. you, can, you can have two guys on the same street building vastly different for different costs because your yeah. competitors right there's some competitors that are trying to do it like you were saying over lunch is as cheaply and as quickly as possible versus the attention to detail, the finish level being a differentiator, you know, and, and that drives cost up in certain areas. So, fin- yeah. The finished carpentry, the yeah. fit and finish can make a massive yeah. difference in cost, but mm-hmm. obviously it creates a completely different product when you, you're not, you're not building to the entry level bar, buyer. Your, your, right. your product has a particular market. I think you're trying to serve and they expect, they expect. Even, even with your own budgets though, I, I will be having my, my team look at from, from project to project. We're going to post mortem at the end of the draws, look at it and say, yeah. okay, after everything's been reallocated and everything lands where it is. And I think with yours, you're much more thoughtful up front. So I don't expect a lot of that movement, but if there is. And, and cost change, we'll look at the new budgets coming in and say, well, you know, your framing is usually at 45 bucks a foot. This one's at 36. Why? And I've done that with large-scale production builders in L.A. I'm doing 24-foot ceilings instead of 14-foot ceilings. Or trusses instead of this. And, and there's usually an answer. Sometimes there's not. and there's Or there's a, there's a square foot discrepancy. We look at the plans. We calculate the cost per foot. I've had seasoned developers, 10 years in the game, miss on their square footprint. And... Or just forget, or just forget one. Their budget, right? Their budget was their budget was off by. Oh, cabinetry! I missed that one. Right? No, and that happens. That happens. Look, look. I needed y'all on my first project I ever did. I accidentally left out the driveway out of the budget. And that okay. was a lot. We, we had one that just missed out, left the roof out, and I got past my underwriting team, and we're now reallocating to cover his roof. Oh, no. But he's got an. But but again, mandating a contingency. It's it LA also, never rains. Right, 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 that's right. <laughs> well, and it's also looks most of our borrowers are capitalized as well, so that if there is a hiccup, they are capable of uh, weathering a storm. Very, 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 one thing did make it interesting again to your to your audience is like, look, things change. So like yeah. the thing about a lot of these budgets is. On a line item, Eric and his team, they, they reallocate stuff. You mm-hmm. know what? I was going to do hardwood. I decided to do stone. Mm-hmm. You know, We're not working with people. They're making those decisions with a very conscious plan. Mm-hmm. So you know, we reallocate on the fly all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we build contingencies. But you know, a lot of times people get this, you know what? In order to really hit the market, I need to spend an extra $150,000 on hardscape and landscape. I need to do something... You know, I wasn't going to do this crazy window door system, but now I'm going to, I'm really going to go forward. I'm going to do this. You got to be fluid enough, understand there's a trade off. Why are they doing it? Most of our guys or gals know why they're doing it. It's very calculated. Mm-hmm. But I can't stop your project. I need to work with you and figure out a way to, to, to support you. But again, if you're trying to teach somebody the basics of construction and why you're doing things, it's going to be a little frustrating for a guy like you or somebody who's a professional. You you got better things to do with your time to explain why you decided to change from this to that. And, you know, there was a reason you didn't do it. Right. You, you know. But, you know, the interesting thing is, I mean, not a lot of us in this space will sometimes just get complacent with bad habits over time. Mm-hmm. 
And we've got some really advanced builders that listen to this podcast. And we also have some people that are, you know, just getting into space. I mean, for the newbies that are trying to improve their systems, is there like a, you have any advice for how they can really wow someone like you, if they were to go, you know, get a lot like, is, should they be using the AIA draw form? Uh, yeah. So I think being as thoughtful as you can with your line item allocations, not get overly granular because truthfully the, the buckets are the buckets. And you know, AA is more than you probably would need. Well, my, my SOV is, is built off of the AA model. Yeah. Like I love, I love the AA model, but that's, that's something that you'll see builders that are building huge multifamily buildings in New York using all the time. I think it's more about just being thoughtful about what line items and what you can manage, making sure you have enough breakout so that it can be clearly monitored by you, by a third party, by whatever, so that it's, yeah. The stages of construction are aptly represented in your budget and in your allocations. You know, a budget is a best guess before you get into the bid out. So just making sure like the high level cost per foot makes sense. Make sure that the allocations are thoughtful and not just a, you know, a wild number put in there by a random person, making sure you're committed and you know those numbers. And as you go to bid out, staying close to your budget the whole time so that the best guess turns into the actual true to life budget of the project. And I say with the lender like me, transparency. If, if if something is going left, tell me. If something is changing, tell me. And if if I tell this to all the borrowers, we're all managed, we're all governed by the same principles, time and cost, right? We all we're all subject to that. So if the time or the cost, cost of money. Right. And if it's right. And if the time well it's cost, right? If the time and the cost are going to exceed the term of the loan in any way, then be transparent and come come to me with the plan. Say, listen, I know I'm over 300 grand. I want to do this over the next six draws and I want you to reduce my draw by 25 grand so that we tape the chunks out each bit of the way. But come come with the strategy, come th- come being thoughtful, you know, and and it it will it won't ever slow your project down. If we have to discover it, we find it and have to process it and then come to you and devise a plan, it's going to take more time and it will slow the draws down. But if if you're being thoughtful and you come to us like, "Hey, we know we're over budget. We're going to infuse equity. It's going on this schedule. Can you guys get behind it? It might not be an immediate yes, but just coming with the solution, identifying the problem, being transparent and coming with the solution, just like everything else in life, it'll, it'll expedite the solve and it'll, it'll create camaraderie instead of, Oh, I had to discover this and what else is going on? And do I need to look, dig a little deeper? And I know, I know a lot of fund control, um, third party companies and, and a lot of other ones are, are looking for how they're going to get. Um, taken advantage of and every draw is an investigative report. I, I don't look at it that way. I, I tell my team all the time that you're a second tier of accounting for really great developers. And luckily for Arixa, Greg and the Originations team have curated a base of fantastic borrowers that are transparent and that are thoughtful. And that that creates an environment of expeditious service and, and fast fund control. Jared, I think yep. my, my, when I would tell people that newer, newer borrowers, so some of our best relationships and best clients started out never having borrowed before. But they knew how to build, and they knew how to renovate. They had, they had expertise on the execution side. So I think a lot of folks, I've pushed people before who was like, I can never do my own project. Yeah. You've been making money for these guys forever. You're great at what you do. You can absolutely do this. It's not as scary as people think. Yeah. A. Um, two is, you don't have to have perfect credit and have been a lifelong borrower. Everybody started. You started with one project. Everyone starts with one. Um, but you have to have the right elements in place. So 
if you have never done anything and don't have a lot of experience and want to get into this business, we're not we're not the person for that. But if you've built, you're an architect, you're a realtor, you're a designer, you're, you've got a team of people, what we're going to vet is your ability to execute. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'll, I'll tell my, I, you know, when people ask, you know, what do you look for in a bar? I have a really simple intent of them for it. I start with somebody who I actually want to do business with. So somebody who's actually nice, pleasant, a good person, because we're entering into a relationship, you and me. So I'd rather work with somebody and, and support somebody who actually appreciates what I'm trying to do and I can appreciate them. It seems really simple, but just just be somebody people want to work with. Um, you know, secondly, do you have an expertise or skill that's going to allow you to be successful in whatever it is you're doing? You could be renovating $100,000 houses. You could be building $10 million houses. But you got to bring something to the table, either you, your team. I did hundreds of projects. I'm not somebody you want to give a hammer to. I'm not. But I'm really good at finding people that know a lot more than me, and I can I could put that team together. More, I was more like the producer in the movie than I was the actor, right? Um, find projects where you're going to make money. Don't come to me and say, Greg, this house could sell for a million dollars because you're trying to convince me to make a loan. I'd appreciate you more if you said it's going to sell for 800. My margin's going to be a little bit lower. Here's the comps I'm using. and Because... We're going to do the work, and you're going to lose a lot of credibility with me if you're trying to convince me of something that just isn't borne out. I hope you get a million dollars, but there's nothing here that would indicate that you can. So does the project make sense? And then last, which seemed like the simplest thing, is you got to have enough gasoline to get to the to get home. And most people who start in a business, the single thing they don't do is assume there's going to be problems on the project. They just undercapitalize themselves, and. I can build a plan where everything is perfect and you need $300,000. That plan almost never happens. Something along the way is going to break, be a problem, be a rework, be a delay. The marble is going to fall off the truck on the way from something. It's not going to be something you could have ever foreseen. And you better have a place to just get to the finish line. If those four things, we like you, you're good at what you do, your project makes sense, and you have enough gas, you have enough liquidity – we never have a problem. If we can get those four things up front. So if you're, a, if you're a borrower, bring those things to the table. There are some great lenders that would love to work with you. Don't be scared. Yeah, yeah it's, um, it's funny you say that. Like, it's a universal law of construction. There will be problems. It's, Even to it, the most experienced. immutable law. And yeah. I think people who start think, well, I'm new. That's why I'm having problems. Mm-mm. We've seen issues with people who've been building for 40 years. Crazy stuff. You know, I mean, crazy stuff. You've seen it on stuff. Stuff you could have never imagined. Yeah. It but just happens. You learn on every project. What, what I've said dozens of times here on this podcast, my, one of my philosophies is that if there is a sphere of knowledge in construction development, and you theoretically could, could learn 100%, the best you will ever be able to do in practice after your entire career, I, you can't ever get all the way. Never. You can't ever get but all the cha- way in this it, business. And it, cha- and it changes on you, right? Well, Dude, yeah, that's it, one of the things. It's, it, it, it's evolving. There's just inherent complexity. Like There's the so change, many things. Changes, changes in materials, changes in building methods. Changes in interest rates. I mean, this is... Yeah. But that's that, that's what I try to teach our audience. Is like, you got to realize you have to, you will never be able to know it all. Even after your entire career, you're still not going to be at 100%. 
But that's what makes and it fun, right? I mean, isn't that what makes it, it interesting? Well, that's what makes it fun, but you need that, and that's why you need that time and that cost contingency, right? That's so critical. But you, but you, you do this podcast out of your, you know, out of your time to educate and, and share great information. The other thing I find in this industry is there's a lot of great mentors. There's a lot of people that want to train a next generation, help. Eric and I get calls, Carl, we get calls all the time. People just, do you know anybody who can do this? Do you have any advice? Do you have a question? Again, I think sometimes people don't realize that all of us started with a very small amount of knowledge. And most all of us, our success is somewhat based on people who helped us along the way, people who took our phone call, who took a meeting, who walked somebody through a project and helped them understand. And, you know, I mean, it's a, it, look, I think it's an industry where it's such a large ocean, there's room for lots of success. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, the, the, the gentleman who we met you is with a competing lender who I have a ton of respect for, and they have a ton of respect for me. Um, you know, that's, that's the kind of world that we're in. And if they called me and, you know, I would do the same thing with them. So it's like, I think in your industry, I'm assuming there's lots of people that you could pick up the phone and bounce something off, or would you do this? Or and, and, I, and I think your 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 listeners probably, you know, maybe they need to, you know, they need to look. Who do I want to be in ten years? Like, yeah, they, they want they want to be you in fifteen years. And you know, how did how did you get there, Jared? What's your story? And you probably shared a lot of that on your podcast. Yeah. And I want to close this out asking you guys a question. The floor's open. Anybody who wants to answer. One of the things I've noticed from the early calls with you guys, I mean. Carly is amazing to work with. Always got just such a, a great positive energy. Eric and his team, extremely knowledgeable. Now that we hung out, went to lunch before this, and I, you know, see all y'all working together, like y'all clearly have a really good culture as a company. Everybody's like a what I call an A player. You can tell just really bright, really skilled at what they do. We're closing out a series on Charlie Munger right now. We're kind of taking some of the lessons and wisdom of him. It gives you, um, lot, it gives you lots of room to go, doesn't oh, it? Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's, we're doing like four or five kind of mini-series on him, and, and it's a lot of fun. But anyway, where was I going with that? You know, he talks so much about how you want to do business, like what you said. You want to do business with, with borrowers you want to work with. I can tell you all also enjoy working with each other and, and hiring really top, you know, top-talented people. And what's the what's kind of the behind the scenes culture with what you guys do at Eric. So like, how do y'all, um, how have y'all built such a successful organization? What's the secret sauce? Well, it, it didn't happen overnight. Yeah. I mean, I mean I'll tell you that it takes a it takes a long time to kind of get your, get your sea legs. I mean, I think one of the most important things about building a great culture is you've got to attract some early great people into that organization that other people want to work with. So, um, you know, Eric's uh, used to work for a very, uh, you know, very prominent lender. He joined us after some other people who had previously worked at the same company came, maybe gave him some comfort that, hey, people I know, like, and trust tell me it's a pretty good place to be. Because anytime you go from one shop to other shop, it's you're, you're jumping over the, the, the chasm yeah, a little sure. bit. But, you know, my view has always been, again, this is my style, you know, is um, – you know, you have to be in an environment where what you're doing is fun for the people you're doing. Like, this is, we get to do really cool real estate stuff. I'm going to go see some kick-ass cool houses with you. We're in a market. We're getting to know people. This is really fun. Like, we work with dynamic, successful real estate investors and builders who 
each of them in their own right have created a success story for themselves in an interesting way. So it's, it's, it's constantly, uh, it's constantly changing and it's different. And you got to find people that that's the environment they want to be in. Um, our culture is very service focused in that no one can work at a rickshaw if they don't understand that the only reason we're here is because of people like you, period of the story. And if, and if we can't always do everything clients want, but we're going to at least try. And if that's not your DNA, if that's not kind of how you think, you know, I always say there's lots of things as, a, as an employer I can't teach you. You're either taught by your parents, your grandparents, you know, your teachers, whatever it was. I can't give you grade school lessons. I can't teach you how to care about other people. I can't teach you how to be respectful. To, but you know, I can teach you the technical nature of the job. I can motivate you, but I can't get you out of bed in the morning, put your shoes on, get you to the office on time, have you care about finishing something, even if it takes you 15 minutes later. And you, I can't teach you those things, you know. But I can try to identify people where that is their makeup, and it's it's something that like you know, Carly is a naturally positive person. He's a good good energy person. You can feel it when you talk to him. Yeah. I can't give that to him. I can't say, hey, Carly, wake up today and feel good about yourself, and it's going to be okay. I can't just yeah. I just don't have the time to do that. You know, I don't think I could do it if I wanted to. So the real challenge is building an organization. It's it's I'm a big sports fan, and so much of it is putting you know you put together a team. And it is never about what team has the most talent in any sport, really. You know, maybe tennis—you play by yourself. But any team sport, it has nothing to do with individual talent added up to be the best team. It is always the system. It's the way the players get along. It's the culture. It's it's how they make everybody on the team better. And it's never the best players. You know, it's it's never the best players. So um, I, don't, I think running organizations the same way. And like if these guys don't see me acting and doing the things that I'm describing, then I'm just, I'm just lip service. So they know, I mean, I'm, I'm maniacal about service. I'm maniacal about taking your clients. Look, you text me at seven o'clock on a Saturday morning and say, it's absolutely urgent. I need to talk to you. I'll call you back. You know, just, that's what I do. I hope you don't do that very often, but you know, but, <laughs> but like if you're doing it, there's something really, really important. You really need something or you wouldn't do it. Right. And, but I think anybody in the team, if you, if you did that, you know, um, you're up really early, but you know, but but like, you'd expect them to know that you're only doing that because it's really important to you, and they wouldn't think twice. Carly was out on a camping trip with his kids and had no service. He just needed a break like, from his kids. <laughs> <laughs> like, Dude, Honey, I need to go down the hill and take a call. <laughs> That's what it was. You know, um, it's interesting. I think. Um, you know, before, you know, coming to work here at Rixa, I was actually a borrower for, God, eight, nine years, ten years. It was a long time. It was a long time. Is that one loan? No. Multiple loans, but yes. Good. A couple took a, a little while. Still going on one of them. still going. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but before that, I was also a lender. And I think um, a lot of it is about kind of flexibility uh, ability to kind of execute quickly. And um, and I think that kind of stems for our organization from the top. And, uh, you know, one of the things that really drew me into the organization to come out of development was an interaction that I had with Greg many years ago, which is sort of at the beginning of the pandemic. I was, uh, I just completed one apartment building, no contract. I was uh, entitling another project and I was getting a CEO on another project. 
and straight up everything took longer because of uh, the wonderful utility companies in the good uh, city of Los Angeles. And um, and I basically was like, hey, I'm coming up on three extensions. COVID just broke. They just shut down the city of LA. I'm in contract on one project. Um, I got no money to extend these loans. What can we do? And he literally said, I understand what we're doing. We've had a relationship for many years. Uh, I trust that you're going to get this done. Call me in six months and let me know how it goes. Came me off that. And to me, that was like, wow. Like, and, and, I, and, and understanding that was really, um, having that relationship with Greg really um, opened my eyes to what banking could really be. Because being at a big bank, you could never get into so that quickly. It was, it was uh, two months to get anything decided. Um, and so um, now that I'm in this space, I, I like... I like that speed. Um, I like being able to understand what we, what I think we can do, and then try and execute on it. And uh, but again, I think it really comes from the top. And so I think being a lean organization, um, working with really good people, I think that's that's really helpful. So, and that makes two cents. Circling back to culture, because I think that I've I've worked at a couple institutions that have put a heavy emphasis on culture being critical and then have lost their way over time and over changes in management. And I think something that Arixa does really well and something that I think leadership is focused on is is sort of keeping everybody engaged with each other and making sure that there's good in-house communication. I think you take your cues from leadership. I've heard this adage, the fish stinks from the head down. And I think everybody's looking to leadership to how to treat each other, how to act, what's important, what are the principles and tenets of the company. Um, you know, when we, when we went into COVID and everybody worked remote, the silo walls got higher, you know, and I think some, some people broke those walls through, you know, online communication. And for some people, that was a great benefit. But I also think, um, I think something that's important to the leadership at Arixa is that we're all together and that there's collaboration. And I, I, I believe that whether it be online or in person, collaboration, communication, and, and a shared understanding of sort of the company's ethos and, and, and um, MO is, is the most important. And I think we, that's not lost at, at this company. There's, we talk about it a lot. We talk about yeah. it a lot. There's a lot of communication. Communication is the key, yeah. you know, and camaraderie and support and not just in work communication, offsite and, and team building. I mean, some of that is mumbo jumbo, but if you do it right, it's, it's invaluable. And, yeah. it, and it creates culture. I love that. Well, guys, this has been a good little short-form podcast. I want to go tour some properties right now. Yeah, so do we. Let's see what you do let's in your, go, let's go. your other job here. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Jared. Good, good to have yeah, us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.